kneel before Zod. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Silence of the North, released October 23rd, 1981. It was written by Patricia Louisiana Knopp, based on a book by Olive Fredrickson and Ben East, directed by Alan King, not that Alan King, and released by Universal Pictures. Olive Fredrickson first published her stories of rugged frontier survival in the serial Outdoor Life, and in 1972 they were compiled into a book entitled Silence of the North. The agent of actress Ellen Burstyn sent her a copy of the book in 74. She spent a quarter million dollars of her own money developing the book into a screenplay and even attached her exorcist collaborator William Friedkin as director and Waylon Green as screenwriter. The director and writer eventually moved on from the project, and the story was readapted from scratch by Patricia Louisiana Knopp. The project was finally greenlit for production by Universal Pictures, with an expected start date of somewhere in 1979. The working title was Comes a Time, after the original song that plays repeatedly throughout the film, but late in the process, the book's title was approved as the new film title. The film initially bombed at the box office, but the success of its original song won the film a number of television broadcast deals, where it spawned something of a cult following. I, I don't really understand why, what attracted Universal to I this property. I don't either. That's the part that confuses me the most, and I think it's just because of the Exorcist connection, mm -hmm. and Ellen Burson had had a number of successes with them and was in a position to spend a quarter million dollars on something she believed in, and so they were like, maybe this was to get her to do something else? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it seems like a weird choice, and this would never get made today, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there, it, it's just not It's just not a super compelling reason to even if it was story. compelling, they don't make these kinds of that's, movies anymore. That's true. That's if true. if it got made today, it would never be a studio thing, or or it would be from an independent arm like a mm -hmm. Searchlight or yeah. Or I mean, it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I could say that you know something like The Revenant is like the modern day version of like, hey, I'm gonna go and do something stupid. Where but it's The Revenant is, is a bigger story, and it's and yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying is like that's that's the modern day equivalent to this sure, story. Yeah, it, it it it's much more compelling in terms of like the action scenes and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. And even, even that story was dramatically changed to make it a more palatable and interesting right. story. Yeah. It was nominated for nine genies and Richard Lederman won his for best cinematography. And I'm, I'm going to just introduce this as a new segment. Dumbest IMDb trivia point. <laughs> okay. Hollowell's film guide says that epic silent film director D.W. Griffith would have liked it. <laughs> <laughs> he would have liked it had he lived to see this movie that's a trivia point what okay someone put that on imdb like it was interesting someone said a ghost would have liked this movie <laughs> i mean i guess it is trivia <laughs> it's, it's fun, very trivial fun, for bit sure. of, fun bit of trivia i would have liked this movie if it were different i think leonardo da vinci would have been confused <laughs> yeah by this movie unfurling before him <laughs> 
We start with a title informing us this is a true story and some expositional voiceover. Tomato Creek, Alberta, Canada. The autumn of 1919. Years before, my family had been on the way to the Peace River when they stopped here to rest and decided to stay. After my mother died, my father moved on and left me with my brothers Lee and John. This is a true story, and I'm going to tell it just the way it happened. And I believe her. Because <laughs> I have no reason not to. We're treated to Lucy J. Dalton's cover of Comes a Time. Comes a time when you're drifting. Comes a time when you settle down. From music and lyrics by Neil Young. There's no competing the Neil Young vocals, so it doesn't quite live up to the original recording, but I don't know why they wouldn't just use the Neil Young version. That seems like it would be the more popular choice to yeah. right. choose the original. Comes a time when you're drifting. Comes a time when you settle down. The camera descends on a carriage moving down a road with three men and a woman. The woman is Olive Fredrickson, played by Ellen Burstyn. Obviously, she's not Fredrickson. Yeah, I was she's, gonna say, <laughs> what, is, what is her last name here? It's like Her- Harriet or. Or, the no, woman is no, Olive something. Yeah, because no, because her brother's last name. Well, yeah, so it must be Herod, isn't it? That's not her brother. That's that's her boyfriend, Arthur. Oh, was that Arthur? God, I'm so confused. I was already confused by the start of this. <laughs> yeah. Only because, like, they kept using other names. It's like the credits say Olive Fredrickson. Yeah. And and she so literally it, it's never... a huge spoiler that it says Olive Fredrickson at the yeah. beginning of the movie. Yeah, she never goes by that in the movie. Yeah. She never goes by that name. Yeah, her in the beginning of the movie, her name is neither Olive nor Fredrickson. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the woman is is Alta, Alta something. I'm gonna name her. Her name is Alta Vista. <laughs> She's played by Ellen Burstyn, and she refers to herself by her middle name, which is Alta. I'm assuming that Goodwin. two of these her last Goodwin, name is Goodwin. Alta Goodwin is riding on a carriage with three men. One is her boyfriend Arthur, and the other two are her brothers Lee and John. She comments on a breeze from the east, suggesting it to be a sign of good fortune. And they tell her she's dumb and that they're just traveling west so the wind comes from the east. And she's like, shut up. It's an easterly wind. (laughs) It means good. They arrive at a small party in a field. And as Alta dances with Arthur, she notices Walter Reamer, played by a sexily bearded Tom Skerritt, smiling at her and then vanishing mysteriously Mm -hmm. as someone passes him. Later, we see a basket auction taking place. It's basically a date auction, like the one at the climax of Groundhog Day. Right. But the baskets are technically anonymous. So you're not supposed to know whose basket is whose. You might accidentally buy the wrong girl, but they leave little hints right. to well, give people clues. Like one looked like it had a dead bird in it. Yeah. It was just <laughs> covered in like feathers and shit. And oh. he's like, oh, whoever wants this one? And a guy immediately bids on it. And then the second auction comes up, and a bidding war kicks up over a mystery basket, but Alta's boyfriend, Arthur, puts in the first bid. Alta confides in him that she recognizes the opposing bidder, Walter Reamer, from their childhood together. So he saw her boyfriend bid on it, and then he was like, I bet that's Alta's. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start paying for it. It was 15 years ago, August, and that's him. That's Walter Reamer. Eventually, Walter is literally outbidding himself and wins the basket for a sum of $11. Sold to the gentleman in the buckskin trousers for the unprecedented sum of $11. The equivalent of 186 bucks today, nowhere near what Rita put in for Phil Connors. $339.88. Later, we see Alta and Walta on a walk together. (laughs) 
because his name's Walter, but I'm saying it like I'm Mike Ehrmantraut. Walter? Walter. (laughs) (laughs) They reminisce over the time they spent together as kids, and she remembers that he called her smart back then, and he remembers that she taught him to catch wild foxes. They kiss briefly, and we cut to late that night, as her brothers warn her against the notoriously aimless wanderer. Walter has asked her to come away with him. If you go, you can forget about ever coming back. That's harsh, brothers. (laughs) Why? Why are you banishing me from the land? She books a boat ride to meet with Walter, and we cut right from there reuniting to the two of them waking in bed together. She announces she will no longer go by her middle name Alta, and she has taken Walter's surname to become Olive Reamer. He assures her that her brother's warnings were misinformed, and he'll take care of her forever. We cut right to Olive screaming with the pain of childbirth in a hospital. Olive's narration informs us that she and Walter moved four times in the first year of their marriage, always slightly further north. Olive breastfeeds a baby on a train car as Walter describes his grand plans to a stranger, and suddenly they are sledding into a snow-covered town. Now, they were already in Alberta, Canada, right? right? and they keep going up. Mm -hmm. Going up, going up, puzz 3D, it's going up. Olive waves Walter home from a work site for a meal, and he informs her that they're moving another 400 miles north to an even smaller settlement where Olive will be the only woman. Um, no thanks. Yeah. Sounds like a total sausage fest. They take a ferry for part of the journey, and in the commotion on the water, they lose a horse and a traveling companion who fall overboard into the rushing stream. Yeah, I I guess another boat collides with them. But it takes so long for them to collide, and the horses are freaking out way before that happens. Later, we see Olive and Walter walking with a baby, and he mentions that he has $300 saved up to establish a permanent home in the next town, and Olive points out how wrong her brothers were to doubt him. That night... Walter proposes blowing his savings on sled dogs. The dog salesman convinces Walter that the region they can reach by dog sled is so swarmed with muskrats that they'll jump right into your traps. Catch them as fast as you can set your traps. Do you remember the last time we saw trappers boasting about such plentiful fur bearers? Oh, shoot. Was it um, Man Called Horse? No. No, it was the one where they're... It wasn't the... Similar costume design. It was. It was. Um... What's the name of that movie? I, I, I mean, I'm picturing the scene. How would you describe the protagonists? Well, there were these two dudes that were like... Two... Men. Where were they? In the no- t- north. Mountain men! Mountain men! The mountain men. <laughs> nice. Say, you ever find that valley? The one that's all swarming with the beavers, where they run up on the banks and fight one another to get in your trap. <laughs> the mountain dudes. <laughs> the mountain dudes. Starring Charlton Heston and Brian Keith. <laughs> as the titular dudes. Are you a mountain enough dude to save the president? <laughs> oh my god. And then they meet up with the Lone Ranger and they save Jason Robards. That'd be great. My husband was a roamer and a dreamer. So I roamed with him and shared his dreams. They're officially in frontier territory now, beyond civilization, where they have to build their own cabin to live in. Things started well, and the trapping was good until winter, when the river froze over and the muskrats left town. I mean, there wasn't a town. (laughs) They left this region. We hear Olive telling their baby the story of how they met, and it's even sadder coming from her. As kids, she taught him how to trap animals, the work he's doing now to provide for her, 
and she mentions how he likes that she was attracted to his brain, but as an adult, he needlessly admitted that he was only ever attracted to her looks, and he never actually cared about her brain. He didn't even think she was smart, he just said it because he knew she'd like it. Olive and the baby are home alone together, while Walter is out hunting, and a bear attacks the cabin. This is a real grizzly bear that was transported from Los Angeles for the film, which... How do you move a grizzly bear? That seems terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming it's some kind of like... They'd have to fly it. They wouldn't truck it that whole way, right? I mean, uh, I think you might. You would truck it? Yeah. I oh, know. I want to see bears on a plane, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was the animal that they had in um, Honky Tonk Freeway? That that crash? Rhino. Was it rhino? It was yeah. Rhino. But didn't they also lose, like, tigers they, they or They killed something? a rhino. They had an elephant. The rhino died the day after they lions. shot Lions. There was also lions. Lions in Honky Tonk. For- oh, yeah, because yeah. they were in the zoo attacked, already at the start of the film. They Jessica Tandy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and Hume Cronin. Do you guys recall the last time someone was left alone in a winter cabin when a grizzly bear attacked? That seems like something I should remember. Oh, I do. What do you got? Uh, Continental Divide. That's correct. Very good. Two for two. She manages to scare it away with a gun, but it backfires and singes her hair. She cuts it short, and Walter arrives home that evening. Before asking what she was shooting at, he demands to know what she did with the hair she cut off, as if he could put it back on somehow. Well, I think I think he wanted to be able to use it for something. Ritualistic what? sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to make a voodoo doll of you. You're not tortured enough around here. He confesses to her that the traps were empty again today, and she confesses to him that she is pregnant. Suddenly we hear more gunfire as a stranger barges into the cabin, brandishing his weapon and taking their valuables. He tells them that he's been fending off the wolves in the wilderness and he's starving. He also mentions that he lost a toe to the cold, and when he noticed it in the snow, he thought it was animal droppings at first. Looked down and thought it was a road apple in the snow. Tried to track the varmint that left and thought I'd shoot it and eat it. Found out it was me. You know, it's the silence of the north is not the problem. It's all this terrifying sounds outside her yeah, freaking cabin. Yeah, pretty loud. I think I would prefer silence. Bears attacking and creepy dudes that are missing toes approaching. Unacceptable. Even unarmed, Walter chases the man with their gun out into the snow, determined to get it back and other things back. Olive pleads with him to stay, but Walter cannot abide this man taking what his family needs to survive. Olive seems to turn on a dime and walk back to the cabin to comfort her crying child. It looks from her demeanor like she has officially given up on Walter as a partner. Like, she's like, all right, you're blatantly not listening to me. Bye. And she turns around and walks back into the cabin. Walter returns empty-handed later that night and gets to work boarding up the cabin. He worries that Olive has made a mistake coming with him. Your brother's hit the goddamn nail on the head with me. Walter leaves his wife and child alone again and marches out into the wilderness with axes, promising to return with meat. Does he mean the meat of the guy that took their gun? I I would assume, yes. He's going to kill that guy and they're going to eat a dude? I mean, I don't know. I didn't really interpret it to mean that they were going to eat that because guy. Because when he comes back, he clearly implies that he was looking for that guy. Yeah. And when he left, he said he was going to come back with meat. So that's weird. In the night, their cabin creaks and squeaks as wolves prowl the tree line around them. Animal sounds haunt Olive throughout the night and into the next morning when Walter returns. He brings with him some food to eat, but he never found the man who stole their supplies. They promise each other that they haven't given up, and they're committed to this life of snow and shit and awful. Mm-hmm. 
literally every single decision this woman makes throughout the film is the incorrect decision. Yes. Especially this moment when she doubles down. Yeah. Our supplies ran out. We brewed spruce needles for tea and ate the bark from trees. The dog's poor things were starving too. Yeah, you're eating the trees. Yeah. It's time to leave. Yeah. <laughs> That's what the tea stands for. <laughs> time to leave. leave. <laughs> uh, she this bark is worse than their bite. <laughs> <laughs> She also mentions that it's that one night it got to be 40 degrees below. It's like, how do you know? Yeah. Like, how do you know that what temperature it was? Because that's the degrees that a testicle falls off of a man. <laughs> <laughs> the other one falls off at 45. So they know that it didn't get that cold. <laughs> it's, like, it's like that thermometer with the yeah. glass. The glass. The one that hangs lower comes off at 40. Olive is talking to the baby about the last surviving photograph of her mother, and Walter is out checking on the dogs, but Olive realizes too late that he's there to put them out of their misery. The baby on the floor has dumped a handful of bullets on the ground, one of which it puts in its mouth. Yeah. Like, I thought it went all the way in its mouth, and I was mad at the filmmaker, (laughs) not even just the woman in the room. I was like, why are you letting that baby put props all the way into his mouth? Yeah. Unless this is a a cheese bullet and the kid's allowed to swallow it yeah it's just been cleverly painted with silver enamel (laughs) all that leftover tin man silver makeup it's perfect we just lined it with lead so he can eat it it's fine it's actually sweet because lead is delicious sweetest of the transition metals (laughs) (laughs) no that's mercury so yeah so when she starts flipping out about the bullets i thought Oh, it's because this baby just swallowed one. Yeah. And now she's carrying the baby outside to tell her husband, he swallowed a bullet, what do we do? Yeah. But that wasn't- But they're not like strike anywhere bullets. Like the baby's not going to (laughs) explode. (laughs) It's just going to be hard to pass, but I thought he was going to choke on it. Yeah. Explosive diarrhea just became much more (laughs) dangerous. Oh my God. Yeah. Could you imagine? What is in here? (laughs) Boom. It's like it's just your turn to shit change everywhere. the diaper. <laughs> the diaper just becomes oh an IED. <laughs> I'm gonna need more wipes <laughs> and a and a small box. <laughs> anyway, back to the film. <laughs> <laughs> Is that why your name's Olive? Because it's about determination. Like no matter where I am, I'll live. I got, and I hope no, not. it's her real name. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. <laughs> she races out of the cabin carrying the child to criticize Walter's choice of killing the dogs. While they argue, the home fire gets out of hand because some bullets rolled beside the furnace and start to explode and then set fire to the other bullets. And they're just firing off in the cabin and exploding everywhere. The whole thing is ablaze in seconds and Walter races in to grab the most important supplies. And the starving family are forced to march through snow in search of shelter somewhere. After what looks like days of walking, they're spotted by a man in a log cabin along their path. That night, Olive wakes from a nightmare in the warm cabin and Walter comforts her and reassures her that he's done with the North. He feels terrible for what he's put his family through, or so he claims. Yeah. I promise you I'm not going to go back there again. And we got enough pelts to buy a small piece of land. We'll clear it and plant it and settle down. I've been tamed. I've been tamed. This is like when I rage quit the podcast behind the scenes and promise Jesse I'm done with it. <laughs> I won't put you and Richard through this any longer. Cut to. 
Anyway, this is episode 317, <laughs> Silence of the North. Olive learns here that her violin and the photograph of her mother were also lost in the fire. He promises to replace them both somehow. <laughs> no, just the violin. He can't replace the picture of the mom. She's gone. I feel like they're pretty lucky that this guy took them in, considering right. what they went mm-hmm. through with that horrible man, like, you yeah. know, basically robbing them. Like, They're lucky would, this guy didn't just shoot them on yeah, sight. who would let a stranger into their house in this territory? But would they have fed that guy if he came in calmly, though? His toes are falling off. Yeah, but I don't <laughs> feel like- Our friend's toes are falling <laughs> off. I feel like there's no sense of who they were because they arrived in a blizzard. Like right. they're barely able to see each other mm-hmm. flagging That's each true. other down. When Olive wakes the next morning, she catches their host watching her sleep. Do you guys recall the last time a woman awoke to a man watching her sleep? Hmm. Endless love? Maybe man is the wrong word. <laughs> Boy. Oh, yeah, that was the pit. Mm-hmm. Our previous episode, the pit. The man introduces himself as John Fredrickson and admits flat out that he was watching her because he hasn't seen a woman in a while and found her beautiful. She's flattered by these words. And the fact that the film opened with credits for Olive and John Fredrickson more than foreshadows where the story is going. She thanks him for saving their lives. Springtime comes and the ice melts back into a river. Olive, Walter, and the kid wave goodbye to their rescuer from the deck of a steamboat named Slavey, which is the actual name of this steamboat. Yeah. It was towed 350 miles to set but it's a functional steamboat. I hate to think of what it was being used for when it was a normal operation. How many slaves do you think you could fit on this ship? Is that what I, <laughs> I don't know. Like, this is very, very upsetting implication. Slavey. Because it does all the work. I get it. I guess. Also, the B-roll of the ice river, like, coming to life yeah it was amazing do you think that was the actual audio of it because they're playing the sound and it's like thunderously loud and i'm sure yeah. that's I, what I, it sounds I like it. yeah do you remember the last time we saw an ancient functional steamboat in a film oh uh um, heaven's gate no it more was recently um it was the ones with the old dudes that went to go fight a war with that old boat right um, the war with a boat no it's not that what is the name of that movie that's the one that's the folks uh, sequel, right? Sea Dogs? Sea Dog. No, not Sea Wolves. Sea Wolves? Sea Wolves. Right? That's the one I'm thinking of? Sea Wolves is the one you're thinking of. It's not the answer I was thinking of. I guess that maybe that wasn't a. It was more boat. recently. Popeye? No, it, more recently than that. It was a 1981 title. It has two stories running side by side in different time periods. Because one is the cast, and then one is the film that they're making oh, together. Oh, The French Lieutenant's Woman? Yes. Ah. I don't remember. remember. I don't remember a steamship yeah. in that at all. There was a steamship that had we commented on the yellow steam coming out of the top mm. of it, which was apparently era accurate. Both Walter and Olive take jobs on the boat and cross paths in the kitchen. Walter makes his preliminary effort to lure Olive north again. Now that it's all over, it really wasn't that bad, was it? It was something that you have promised we never have to go through again. I don't know. I promised I'm going to keep the promise. But I mean, still in all, everything considered, it really wasn't that bad. I mean, if it weren't for the fire. Walter Reamer, we damn near died. Like multiple times. Yeah. Like not Like just if once. that cabin hadn't been there, they would be dead. Yeah. Their kid would be a kidsicle. And there would be a popsicle and a momsicle. Out in the dining room, an enthusiastic electricity salesman knocks a tray of plates out of Olive's hands and spills soup all over himself. She was also needlessly leaning over him with this precarious Mm -hmm. bowl of soup, but the film makes it his fault because he's so angry about it. 
He demands that she clean his clothes and grabs her arm when another man tries to intervene on her behalf. She fights them both off and tells the second man that she doesn't need his help. I have just survived against all possible odds. I can take care of myself. I'm nine months pregnant and tired as hell. I'm not going to wash your shirt. You want a clean shirt? Leave it on and go jump in the river. (laughs) And I do like that she's taking charge and she's not even accepting help from anyone that she's like, fuck off. I can handle these people myself. But she does this exact thing so many times where she's as angry as the people who are hurting her as she is at the people who are just good hearted and trying to help her. And it's like, no, you should take help sometimes from people. Yeah. Well, that's what I was saying. Like literally every opportunity she has to make a better choice for herself, she chooses not to. Yeah. And for, they're trying to no make it real good reason. Right. And they, they try to make it like, oh, well, she's She's just, you know, she's independent independent, and she's and she's rugged and she can deal with this stuff. And it's like, yeah, but if you take that too far, then you're Walter and you're this person who just wants to go kill his whole family in the wilderness because he's a jerk who thinks things will work out and that he's going to force it to work out. Right when they get off the boat, they reach Fort McMurray where Olive can have her second baby. The doctor informs Walter that she's lost a lot of blood and he can't make any promises she'll survive. Walter gives the doctor a bunch of reasons for Olive to live. Like, he just bought a plot of land, and he'll replace her violin. I'm sure she'll be happy to hear that. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know why you're telling me this. Yeah, this is this is really great drama. You should be telling her, yeah. even if she's unconscious. Why didn't I let you in the room? That would have been great. You could talk to him about it, and that'd be, that'd be great. Yeah, maybe redeem yourself a little bit in the eyes of literally anyone. If she's even alive now, who knows? Nobody's checking in. I do. She wrote the book adapted into the movie. Walter makes a bargain, seemingly with God, that he will keep his word and stay put if Olive can survive the night. She does. And, and he it. doesn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gotcha, God. It's too late. No take backs. Uh, she does make it through the night, and they make a nice life for themselves on the land that Walter bought. One day, a pilot lands a biplane in town, and Walter is reminded of how adventurous he used to be. That night, he breaks his promise and tries to talk Olive into another adventure north. She informs him she won't go, but he's welcome to. They silently agree to part ways, and we see a glimpse of Walter rafting his way north. Mr. Fredrickson, the man who once saved them from the cold, pops by the home where Olive and the kids decided to stay. She invites him to join them for dinner, and he takes a seat at the table before breaking it to Olive that Walter's thirst for danger has finally drowned him. He offers his home in town to provide for Olive and the kids if it helps, and she passes on the offer. And not, we just, cut- not just his home. He offered a, a life. Yeah. Well, and he offered not even like with any strings attached, like you got to marry me. He offered to like stay and help her through the winter. The and, winter. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. just like, look, I'm going to make sure that you guys, you know, weather this. And he wasn't asking for anything in return. Right. So the answer to that is, yeah, why not? Yeah. Because I have two kids who I'm, I need to keep alive. And this is the best opportunity for all mm-hmm. of us right He's now. He's literally asking for nothing in return right now. Yeah. We cut to her chopping down trees in the woods when she is suddenly chased back to the road by a bear. But she finds a shotgun in her horse trailer and fires at the bear, scaring it away. Goddamn you, Walter Reamer! Goddamn you for leaving me! In narration, we learn that when Walter left her, she was pregnant with a third child, and now we cut to that child's birth. She nearly names it Walter Jr., but one of his sisters, Olive, recommends the name Lewis because she doesn't like sharing a name with her mother. Olive tells little Olive that she can change her name whenever she wants. In a nice way. <laughs> not like, <laughs> not like, oh, fuck you, change it, you jerk. <laughs> it's more like, oh, well, you can change your name. I, you know, I used to be called Alta, and now I'm called Olive, which is the name someone gave me. 
<laughs> I, I technically I chose Alta yeah. and then I gave it up. So you can change your name as long as you promise to change it back after you marry a jerk and move to the wilderness. Sometime later, Olive's old boyfriend Arthur from the start of the film shows up to her farm with flowers. He delivers his condolences and her brother's condolences after the passing of Walter. He informs her not so subtly that he's made quite a success of himself back in Tomato Creek. He has a big house and lots of money with which he could keep her and the kids very comfortable. Olive is distracted from his pitch by the crying of baby Lewis. She's clearly not interested in the offer already, and then he puts his foot as completely in his mouth as he can. You, you can't provide for, for children and keeping them warm in the winter. Why not? I've got two arms. I'm not lame. She doesn't bother pointing out that she has already done exactly that for many winters now, and then informs him that her winter plan involves shooting a moose in the face. So mm-hmm. we cut to that happening. <laughs> She's taking a shot from a canoe with the kids on board, and they try to talk her out of killing it, especially when they see the moose has a baby of its own, which I would have just named Seconds. <laughs> Further downstream, they spot another moose without a baby, and Olive lines up her shot and takes the beast down. Good mama. I know. Everything that lives must die, babies. Later, she hacks up the body with the help of her middle child, and then they load it into a canoe. That night, they make camp, and wolves strike. I don't know why they made camp. Just get in the canoe and go. Why are you staying here? Like, obviously, well, and they didn't really necessarily show them making their way down the river with the the carcass, so presumably there might even just be like a moose head hanging out here. I would Mm -hmm. not camp by that. Yeah. (laughs) Or you hang it from a tree. Yeah. Or, or you leave it to distract the wolves. It's like, here, have the head. I can't or you wear this. it and just start screaming at them. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is that, Roger? <laughs> I'm not messing with no moose man. <laughs> they rush back to the canoe, and she swats at one of the wolves on shore with an oar before paddling out into the darkness. The kids try to talk their mother into moving to town where they don't have to do things like battle wolves for moose piles. <laughs> their things behind like there's got to be yeah. at least a cast iron pot that they i think Who they had it over the shit. fire they hitchhike into town and olive finds work at a local soup kitchen mr frederickson happens upon her there as a truck driver making a delivery they strike up a conversation and the soup connoisseurs get impatient lady if i don't eat soon it's the marble orchard for me i like that yeah because we don't we haven't gotten any other dates since then yeah I, this has to be like depression era time yeah yeah deep into it Later, we see Mr. Frederickson walk Olive home. He kisses her goodbye, and the kids all watch smiling from a window. He leans forward to give her a hug, and she suddenly realizes that she cares for this man. We cut to them dancing together at a local party, but Olive is distracted when Lewis wanders in alone. I guess his sisters just let him walk out of the house down to the dance hall. Apparently, the young boy snuck away, and his mother is informed that he is ill. Like, he says it himself. Like, he walks up and he says, Mama, I'm sick. And she immediately is like, Oh my God, no! When it's like my kids tell me they're sick every day and I'm like, all right. Go to school. (laughs) (laughs) Go to school. School says you have to go even if you're sick. She holds him tight and we cut to her violently shaking a doctor until he slaps her and then she slaps him back. No, 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 no. Then we get an expertly crafted bit of exposition. How dare you? How dare you say my son is dying? My dear lady, I said your son has spinal meningitis. (laughs) Perfect. And cut. She covers her ears and runs away from the man. 
Outside, she watches Fredrickson have a snowball fight with her daughters, and one of them throws a snowball at her mom that explodes on the window in front of her face. Lewis died the same night. He was diagnosed and died within like 12 hours. We see her walking in the cold, and Fredrickson finds her and gives her a ride home. He makes the same offer of assistance again, practically begging her to accept it, and she turns him down again. He tells her that finding her in the snow when they met seemed like the reason he was up there in the first place. She warns him that she has nothing to offer in return, and he asks about her other children and what they'll survive on if her reservoir is empty. Yeah. He's like, no, I don't need your help. I'm just going to go home and be depressed and not care yeah. for my children anymore. They will just starve to death outside my bedroom. About a month later, Olive still hasn't taken Mr. Fredrickson up on his offer. One of her two daughters speaks to her in bed. Olive Jr. tells Olive that Fredrickson was seen eating lunch with a woman. She reminds Olive what she said about killing the moose and how everything dies someday. You said every living thing has to die and that we had to be thankful that we're still alive. It was a real honor knowing Lewis for as long as we did. This comment seems to break through her shell and they hug it out together. It's because her child is so much more emotionally intelligent than she is. Because but she's look who she was to, raised by. Well, I was yeah. going to say, she's had to deal with all this bullshit from her mother this yeah. whole time. Yeah. Well, and her father. Like, yeah. It's but just... Olive just had a bunch of emotionally unavailable men. There were, you know, her dad who literally just walked away and her brothers who were like, if you if you go and date that boy, then you can't talk to us anymore. And then that boy was like, hey, let's go die in the snow or you suck. And then he died. <laughs> <laughs> died doing what he loved. Dying. Being an idiot. <laughs> dying in the snow. <laughs> he died doing what he loved. Dying. That night, the family go out for dinner and pass a dance hall on the way home. One of the daughters spots Fredrickson's lunch date and assumes that Fredrickson is inside. Olive urges them all home. They manage to drag her into the party, and she spots Fredrickson with his girl mid-dance. So he is. I'm going to tell him we miss him. Don't you, dear. I am. Absolutely not. I like that daughter. She's just like, what's the meanest thing to do to my mom right now? Olive gives the couple a good hard look and finally realizes that she loves him. Thank God. I'm jealous. She crosses the dance floor and cuts in on Fredrickson's date. Yeah, th this is like one of the worst things that she does is yeah like, it's like well i finally realized like maybe i love you now that i know that you're seeing somebody yeah. else i didn't care about you until i realized that you weren't a loser and that everyone doesn't hate you yeah literally every choice she makes in this film is yeah. wrong you had so many opportunities to tell this guy yes and now is when you choose to do it he tells her he's leaving town for a new job in Peace River, and she mentions that that's where her family was headed when she was a child, before she crossed paths with Walter and their fates were entwined. He tells Olive that he'll miss her, and she feels the same way. And we cut right to Fredrickson, Olive, and the girls boarding a plane to Peace River together. At the last second, three hitchhikers flag a ride, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. No, that's not true. <laughs> the main theme strikes up one last time as the plane takes off, and closing titles tell us, the filmmakers wish to thank Olive and John Fredrickson for their contribution to the making of this motion picture. Olive recently celebrated her 80th birthday with her entire family. They went to see The Pit at a local theater. They all continue to live in northwestern Canada. Well, not her entire family. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, also, she makes another 
she does the the thing that she did at the beginning of the movie where she says the wind's coming from the east it's a good sign it's like no clearly this <laughs> now is it's time n- to make the sequel about frederickson dying in the snow and yeah it's like she cl- moves on to the next guy reluctantly did you not realize that the wind blowing from the east was the worst or maybe her brothers were right and it wasn't blowing from the east <laughs> that's why because she was wrong the whole time no 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 that's from the west you're fucked wait for the rest of this movie to play out it's gonna <laughs> suck <laughs> Like, if the wind were blowing the other way, it would have blown their carriage off course and mm-hmm. she wouldn't have gone to the dance where Walter was. And, it's like a sliding doors situation. Well, and he says he's got a job with an airline. It's like, are you a pilot? What What? What are you doing? And then well, they, he's not in the front of the plane when they leave. Right. So. Um. And then they're flying to Peace River, which just doesn't seem like it's a hub. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like, not, there's not an airport in Peace River. Yeah. Uh, so I'm very confused about what their situation is, but, uh, uh, but still, even still, I got a job for an airlines. They're paying passengers for one flight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to take me all the way to peace river. And then that's it. It's a one way job. Uh, but even still at this moment, she's still not Olive Fredrickson. Right. She's still just Olive Reamer at this point. We can only assume that she married this guy, mm-hmm. but maybe she found another Mr. Fredrickson. There's a lot of them in the old days. Anyway, that's the movie. Um, I feel like what happened was this lady was in a waiting room at a doctor's office and told someone her life story and they sarcastically said, (laughs) you should write that down. That should be a book. And she did. And a lot of people read it. And I guess it spoke to Burstyn uh, in particular because she she nabbed the film rights, if nabbed is the right word, um, for buying a thing on a shelf that was neglected. and then she worked really hard to make this movie. I guess it was a passion project for her. I don't even feel like she's doing her best work here, though. Yeah. I feel like um, she was probably attracted to, like, the, the obstinacy of the character. That it was, like, a person who fights for her independence and, and thinks she's going to make her own way for mm-hmm. her entire life. But even if that's what attracts you to the role, then he, she shouldn't go off with the guy at the end of the story. Yeah. Like, it should have ended before that happened. But I guess that's, you know, it's a movie, so it has to have a happy ending. But if the whole, like, engine of the story is that it's like, no, the point is this is a different kind of woman who doesn't rely on other people. And then it's like, and in the end, it's a happy ending because she relies on this guy to save her and her children. It's like, then she should have done it earlier. And I know that it's based on a true story. Right. So you can't really change the events. But But that's why it's not a good story. (laughs) That's why it's it's an inconsistent character. Yeah. you, You have to adjust a story to be more cinematic and, yeah and if that means fudging some facts uh then that's what you do i think she just made a promise to this lady like i'm gonna i'm gonna do your story justice and it's like i'm gonna i'm just gonna shoot it exactly <laughs> how you put it on this page and if you don't like it it's your own life um also i thought it was strange that you had mentioned that uh it won like awards for cinematography or the cinematographer well credit to be fair we're watching a bad vhs yeah, that's true of the movie but there was one particular shot that I was like oh this is terrible i can't even see what's going on it it's when uh fredrickson picks her up uh in the snow and they're driving yeah the camera is outside like behind the, the truck well yeah it's like the camera's on like attached to the to the rig and looking at them through the, the side passenger window. Yeah. But because it's winter and there's so much white on the ground, you can't see them in the car. 
yeah. because there's just so much glare for, and the reflections coming from yeah. the scenery outside. And I was like, this is terrible. I can't, I can, I can only, t- I can only hear their voices. And the night that the wolves attacked the cabin mm-hmm. is so dark that you can't see anything either. But again, that could be an issue that's, that's fixed with a nice transfer of the movie, which I don't expect it to get. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a well-known film. I think it's on VHS because it was on television a lot. Oh, oh, that that night with the wolves and when she's hearing all the sounds and she just screams. Yeah, that's how they punctuate the scene is her just screaming into the darkness. Yeah, it just reminded me of Tremors when the the car is going down into the ground. You just hear her screaming as yeah. the headlights fade. Where are the golden oldies coming from? But yeah, um, thumbs down. Yeah. it's not It's not worth your time, probably. It's a true story and we just told it to you. Yeah, and it's no more exciting than what I said. It, it it was very like, like I had to read a little house in the big woods in school, <laughs> and that's like I just like was just getting like PTSD. It's like oh god, this that's one. What I, that's what I said to Patrick. I was like, this feels like something I would have been forced to watch in school over the course of like mm-hmm. three <laughs> days in history class. Yeah. Um. What are we thinking? Letterboxed. Speaking of things you were forced to watch in school, I have it pretty close to Tuck Everlasting. <laughs> it, I actually have it close to Tuck Everlasting, too. <laughs> they're, bo- they're both the same VHS quality And I think production. I actually was forced to watch Tuck Everlasting. Yeah. I definitely read it in school. Yeah. But you watched it because you told me when we first started, you were like, I was like this is looks, the one that we watched It looks watched familiar, yeah. Um, so I, I, have it, I have it two above Tuck Everlasting. It is number 124 out of 149. It is just below rich and famous and just above night school uh i i feel a little bit better because i was worried maybe i put this movie too harshly (laughs) uh because i have it at 105 uh which puts it at uh which puts it below all the marbles and above the four seasons all right um i actually have it in 140th uh, which is three under Tuck Everlasting. It's directly under Rich and Famous, just like yours is, and it's above Scream in 141. Oh, man, that's a that's a jump so it's, then. It's like that movie Sounds of the North to Scream. I don't know. I mean, Sounds of the North is just, there's just not enough to it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the biggest problem with Scream is that it, it feels like they shot 60% of a movie and edited it together and we're like, you know what, we're done. <laughs> My wife said I can't get any more credit cards, so I think maybe we'll just call it a wrap. Thanks, everybody. Um, and then everything below that is just like me getting angrier and angrier as I watch it. Anything ranked below Scream on my list is just infuriating. Our director here was Alan King. Like I said, not that Alan King. He directed 14 episodes of Avonlea and Who Has Seen the Wind, but mostly documentary work outside of those two. The writer, Olive Fredrickson, and Ben East, uh, which is based on Silence of the North. This is their only credits in anything, obviously. Uh, The writer who adapted it, Patricia Louisiana Knopp, also wrote Nine and a Half Weeks and A Few Red Shoe Diaries, which she Ah, also produced. Um, The music here came from Alan McMillan. No other credits I could find. Cinematographer Richard Lederman. uh, He was the DP on the 1990 Stephen King It miniseries. Um... And like I said, he won a genie for his work here. Ellen Burstyn was Olive Fredrickson. She's Chris McNeil in The Exorcist, for which she got a Best Actress nomination. She was Lois Sparrow in The Last Picture Show, for which she got a Supporting Actress nomination. Alice Hyatt in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, one Best Actress. And Sarah Goldfarb in Requiem for a Dream, 
Best Actress nomination, and another Best Actress nomination for Same Time Next Year, which we've already covered on the show. She is currently reprising the Chris McNeil part in David Gordon Green's Exorcist sequel trilogy, the first of which will be coming out this year. Oh, wow. Tom Skerritt played Walter Reamer. We covered him first for his part in M.A.S.H. and later in Lion Attack movie Savage Harvest. He's also in Harold and Maud, Up in Smoke, The Dead Zone, Top Gun. And we've also discussed on the show his cameo as himself in Seth MacFarlane's Ted. <laughs> uh, Gordon Pinsent played John Fredrickson. I like this guy. He was Jamie in the 68 Thomas Crown Affair. He's the U.S. president in Colossus, The Forbin Project. We've covered his work last as Swiftwater Bill in our Minnesota review of Klondike Fever, which takes place around the same time. You reminded me a, uh, a lot of Ray Walston. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, Pinsent is, is the Canadian Ray Walston for sure. If Ray Walston's not Canadian, <laughs> I don't know. Jennifer McKinney played little Olive Reamer. She was little Robin Marshall in Death Ship last season. That's the girl whose brother's peeing on the deck of the ship. <laughs> I'll refer to her as such anytime she comes up, which is never again. This is These are only two films. I have no idea. Maybe. Jeff Banks played Lewis Reamer. He was young Axel, the kid who saw his dad murdered in My Bloody Valentine earlier this season. And these are his only two credits. So that's a wrap on Jeff Banks, everybody. Colin Fox played Arthur Harriet. We saw him last as a spy in our Minnesota review of Kinji Fukasaku's Virus Day of Resurrection. He shows up in Food of the Gods 2. He voiced King Harkinian in 13 Legend of Zeldas. He's also Nelson in Tommy Boy and Uatu the Watcher in three episodes of Silver Surfer which was an animated series, I think, in the 90s. Yeah. Larry Reynolds played the auctioneer. He was Mayor Hanniger of the Hanniger Mine fame in My Bloody Valentine, and he was Secdef Morrison in Virus Day of Resurrection. Ken Pogue played the wild man. That's the, the guy with the missing toe. He was the vice president in Dead Zone. He's Dr. Krauss in Virus Day of Resurrection. Sean Sullivan played Tattered Man. He was Dr. Bill Michaels in 2001 A Space Odyssey and Herb Smith in The Dead Zone. Sean McMahon played Man on Soup Line. I'm assuming that's the one who talks. He was Jake in Nothing Personal, Colonel Warner in Hog Wild, a detective in Atlantic City, and a news reporter in Death Hunt before this so far. So that's all Canadian stuff. He also shows up in Naked Lunch, The Air Up There, Tommy Boy, Simon Birch, and he was Donald Reagan in Mr. Narasta's The Day Reagan Was Shot. Hmm. Donald Reagan. Bargain bin Ronald Reagan. <laughs> no, I, I'm assuming it's his child or dad yeah. or good friend who just by coincidence has the same last name <laughs> i think that's everything for silence of the north if you have any thoughts you'd like to share we are vintage video pod on twitter facebook instagram youtube and letterboxd or as i've said before you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year we can also be found at vintagevideopodcast.com we also have a discord now join the 24 7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past present and future at vintagevideopodcast.com slash discord and if you're listening on youtube don't forget to subscribe what's that sound That's right, it's a new patron, David Brown. Not that David Brown, I don't think. <laughs> but if it is, hey, Dave Brown. <laughs> we went to school with the Dave Brown. As a $5 patron of the show, David now has access to 39 full-size 70s reviews and 40 minisodes from 1980, as well as a hand in choosing next month's film. Thank you, David, for your contribution to the show, and thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Halloween 2, which IMDb describes like so. While Dr. Loomis hunts for Michael Myers, a traumatized Lori is rushed to Haddonfield Memorial Hospital, and the shape is not far behind her. We leave you now with a trailer for Halloween 2. 
I shot him six times. I shot him in the heart. He's not human. Universal Pictures presents Halloween 2. More of the night he came home. There was nothing within him, neither conscience nor reason, that wasn't even remotely human. Some kind of a joke. I've been trick-or-treated to death tonight. You don't know what death is. Janet, go tell Mr. Garrett we're having trouble with the phones. There is no place to hide. He will always find you. What's this? It's a Celtic word. It means the Lord of the Dead.